I'm Trisha, and welcome to Is It Recess Yet? Confessions of a Former Child Prodigy, a podcast about my years as a teenage concert violinist and my quest to evolve beyond that identity. Follow me on my journey, and along the way, you'll get an insider's look into the classical music world and listen to conversations with innovative artists who are forging new and playful paths into creativity. So let's go. Because I think I hear the recess bell. My guest today is Rebecca Fisher, heard here with her group, the Chiara String Quartet, playing the last movement from the Brahms String Quartet in C minor, Opus 51, off of their album, Brahms by Heart. Rebecca Fisher is a New York-based violinist, writer, and educator. First violinist of the Chiara String Quartet for 18 years, Rebecca has toured the world, performed and recorded multiple works by heart, and held residencies at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the University of Nebraska, and Harvard University. She is one half of The Afield, a multidisciplinary collaboration with visual artist, writer, Anthony Hawley, combining new and original compositions for violin, voice, and electronics with video and other media, a regular contributor to Strings Magazine and other publications and blogs. Rebecca writes about the creative journeys of musicians, her travel experiences, and the challenges involved in pursuing an artistic lifestyle. She is Associate Director of Greenwood Music Camp in Massachusetts and teaches at the New School in New York City. Rebecca holds degrees from Columbia University and the Juilliard School. I think I have you know, a kind of unusual story in that I'm the third generation of professional musicians. So my maternal grandmother um, was a really phenomenal sort of prodigy jazz and classical pianist. And I grew up with her being this kind of wonderful source of inspiration. And she was a very eccentric woman. And my mother's a pianist, my father's a cellist, and his whole family also is composed of a lot of musicians. And I think my sister and I, my sister who's also a professional musician, um, it's not exactly like we avoided becoming musicians, but I think we did question it in a different way and maybe a healthy way. But music for me was just part of life. Practicing was part of what people did. It wasn't necessarily expected so much as just part of the day, part of you know what everyone was doing around the house and there was a lot of joy um, and still is a lot of joy involved in music making in my family. So I would say it's a positive thing, although I think I've always wondered what it would be like to come from a family that did not have music. It's um, caused me to really question and evaluate what music is <laughs> maybe more, more profoundly because I have come from it being such a prevalent part of life. I sort of feel like I'm on the opposite end. I, I wrote, uh-huh. I'm, I'm often curious and envious of musicians who come from musical <laughs> households not having come yeah. from one myself. So it's really interesting 
for you to talk about how it sounds like it's in your DNA even. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question, right? I actually am writing a book right now, and one of the essays is called The Family Business, and it's about this very issue and sort of the complexity of it, because I do think that um, when I was growing up, some of my friends who are also in music who did not come from musical households assumed that I have this upper hand and that, you know, things were easy for me and stuff. And I, I do think that a lot of, I don't know if it's exactly, maybe it is DNA or just experience. It's like nature versus nurture, right? There were these sort of wonderful things and just part of like, literally I had music in utero, but I do think that the kinds of expectations that were put on me or that I took on when I became more serious about music. Yeah, I think every generation, if we're talking about DNA, you know, uh, questions what came before and perhaps what's going to come next. And I think all of us are sort of striving to find our own voice in whatever we're doing and make ourselves distinctive or find out what's distinctive about ourselves. And I think for me, I saw in a, in a musical lifestyle what that looks like from one generation to the next, sometimes it can be problematic, right? You're like, oh, did you get your your mother's, you know, it's not just like, oh, did you get your mother's eyes? Did you get your mother's like fluid technique, you know? And you're like, maybe I didn't, you know? <laughs> Things like that where you, you start to question little details like that, but also just how can music function in my life? Do I need it to be everything or do I need it to be only 75% of my life or 55% of my life? or something like that. Whereas for my parents, it always has been really 100% of the way that they operate. And a big part of your musical life was in a string quartet, the Chiara Quartet, also kind of an all-encompassing kind of mm -hmm. life professionally. And, and it becomes kind of, I found, sort of an extension of your family. It becomes yeah. part of your family. Can you talk a little bit about how the Chiaras got started? It was actually kind of a wonderful beginning. We, Greg Beaver and I, the cellist, met at a summer music camp, and we were placed together in a quartet with two other wonderful musicians. And we're just kind of passionate about doing this. I mean, I, again, had the good fortune of growing up in a family where my father was in a string quartet, and I really idealized the idea of chamber music as a career path, but just as a path towards sort of fun and just getting together and collaboration. And so, um, but we were all really all in as teenagers and we would, we came back to that same festival a year after that. And then one of my lifelong friends, Jonas Arota joined the group and we just kind of embarked upon this. I, I don't know. I would say it's kind of this wonderful fairy tale which was like, okay, let's get together and rehearse in, you know, on this, in the summer and sometimes there were breaks and let's do this as a career. And, you know, there were certainly bumps along the road and we finally found our, all of our four members with Hei Young Yoon, uh, our other wonderful violinist. And, you know, we just had so many kind of fascinating <laughs> adventures. I mean, our first sort of job, our first gig was living in North Dakota for two years where we were, we had a, a rural residency uh, to work in the community there. And we were in residence with the community orchestra, the greater Grand Forks symphony orchestra. And we would rehearse four to five hours a day and then also go to schools and um, play performances in the community, as well as trying to sort of start a professional life as an ensemble. We were traveling a lot from 
North Dakota, which took a little bit longer than it might have if we had stayed in New York. However, you know, living in North Dakota was kind of amazing. So when we came back to to the city to study further at Juilliard as a, as a quartet, I think our experiences in a more rural community were really extraordinary for us and kind of solidified our commitment to being a full-time group. So I think for, for our quartet, that family element was always there in a sense. Like we were, we sort of bonded together in the very uh, cold north. <laughs> and I think that really, I don't know, there was a lot of joy in music making in our quartet and a lot of commitment to our relationships. Playing in a string quartet is this, as you said, for yourself and for me and for many string players, you had your father's kind of legacy as well. But it's often a kind of coveted career path for string players. Mm-hmm. The repertoire <laughs> is so rich and, and and at the same time, it's a pretty challenging lifestyle musically and interpersonally. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of I think it's changing, but the lifestyle itself is often kind of shrouded in sort of mystery. Um, yeah. What advice would you give to musicians who are embarking on the string quartet path? And what are some <laughs> of the things that maybe you wish you'd known when you started out? What are Because I've, I've noticed you've said there's so much joy in music making. You said there was a lot of joy in music making in your quartet. Could you shed a little light? On, on the life? <laughs> <laughs> sure. I mean, you, you know about this too. Um, it is, it is this kind of coveted lifestyle that it just, it has so many benefits, right? I mean, I've spent so many, I spent so many years making lists of those benefits and drawbacks. <laughs> um, and you do have this incredible opportunity to play what I think is some of the greatest music out there with three people who hopefully with whom you share like values and a certain kind of commitment, I think it's very challenging for everyone to be equally committed in a group like that. I don't know. I guess my advice to some younger quartets is to really try each other out, (laughs) you know, like really don't, don't be afraid to really not, not (laughs) say like, hi, we, we have a commitment letter for you that lasts three months and if you can, t- if you can take it. But just, just to be aware that not everybody is on the same path or is able to commit. And so sort of keeping that light, um, that lightness, I don't know if that's advice. <laughs> yeah. But just sort of being, being aware of that because everybody's sort of in these different life paths. But I, I think that one of the reasons we were able to keep going was because we had certain elements of stability. So sometimes these were residencies and sometimes these were just supporters that we were able to just keep in touch with over the years who sometimes supported us monetarily, um, but also just people who were just our advocates. And I think keeping that larger family going was really, really essential for the life of a quartet, you know, because every quartet, because it really is like any other kind of small business, you're just, you're starting out, you know what your values are, you know what your product is, but you've got to work extremely hard. A lot of quartets don't sound good until they're like a year old or something. They're just getting used to each other. So I would say really honor the supporters and the advocates that you have. I think that was really essential for us was just making sure that we held those people close and kept asking them for advice and and kept sort of that circle well growing that circle but also making sure that 
we still had those those friends and supporters. And those could be family members, friends, definitely mentors, teachers, series when we played, you know, where we played. And those are the people that would recommend you sometimes to other series if you don't have a manager or if you're in the middle between managers and, you know, things like that. I, I don't know. I, I remember somebody saying once about a job satisfaction survey they saw where chamber musicians were right up at the top. And even though there wasn't <laughs> always adequate monetary compensation to justify that, there was something to be said for working together in a small team. I think keeping the, the equality piece is very, very challenging. And so making sure that people have an equal voice and feel sort of heard and supported in the group is, that's also the advice that I would say to everybody. Anybody who thinks that running a string quartet for a long period of time, at least in this day and age, it seems, uh, with like one leader and three followers is probably not gonna work. <laughs> but it's happened in the past. It's it's been made to work. So, but that, that's what I found. And also when I've seen young groups, the ones that seem to do the best are the ones who, who are able to each have an equal voice in the group. Playing in quartets teaches you so much about how to relate interpersonally in your relationships. I mean, the joke is of course that it's sort of like a four-way marriage for better, for worse. (laughs) Yeah. But yours is one of the groups, especially of like a a sort of younger generation that um, you, as far as I know, like you stayed, there was the four of you, there was no Mm -hmm. personnel changes. I feel like there are parallels to kind of marriage and sort of how people address commitment. And so I think that the commitment part that you talk about and, and what that means to solidifying trust and making sure everybody's heard is like a really, it's a life skill that I think quartet playing can, can teach you. I, I agree. I mean, I think it's also, yeah, it, it brings up a lot about community in general and the fact that in order for communities to function well, you also have to support people who are in need, right, at given times. So throughout the 18 years that my quartet played together, there were certainly periods of time when one of us was, or even two of us were not doing well, you know, for various reasons, Where whether it was in the quartet or outside of the quartet, whether it was anything from family to just something going on with somebody's playing or, you know, things happen, some people are doing really well, we support that period of time, you know, and so I think like with uh, sort of echoing what you said in terms of it being like any kind of committed relationship being willing to weather and sort of support people as they're growing, which is all of us, you know, is like really, really essential. Um, I feel like a lot of times I see young groups disband um, because, you know, somebody's having like an issue or something. And then the other people in the group are like, we don't have time for this, you know, Um, which sometimes is, is the right move. And sometimes, you know, is just maybe it would take a month or something to figure out something. But I think it's always challenging, you know, playing chamber music. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's really valuable what you're saying because I think that how a quartet as an organism is sort of unique um, or any sort of small ensemble is that as a self-directed entity, you do ostensibly all have a 25% part in it. Right. But 
it's not it's not just business right and I think that that is sometimes a kind of the culture of each quartet I think is different every quartet is different from every other quartet because of how they approach those things but I tend to agree with you that I think it's worth trying to make space for the fact that it's not it's not business it's not just business it's your your yeah. lives are intertwined and even just the the intimacy of making music with another person that already transcends kind of a sort of um it's it's not just a transactional relationship. There are some quartets that have tried to maintain that, like very like a lot of boundaries and don't travel together and don't hang out together after concerts and stuff. And I think that is also a valid, you know, I mean, it it's possible <laughs> maybe to create that that kind of relationship. And and some people might say that that's a healthier way to go in terms of trying to avoid some of the the closeness and the interpersonal problems that that can arise from the closeness but I think our group was always wanted to kind of get into the trenches with um the depth of the emotional work that it took to address the musical work and so actually in the last few years of our quartet's career we instigated this system that Greg Bivar cellist adopted for a string quartet based on software developers and the way that they work. And so it was like kind of a fascinating way for us to look at the string quartet as a small business and compare it to other organizations that are also doing small business work and see how they kind of cooperate as a team and some of the things they put in place. Uh, this is a, a system called Scrum. Things they put in place to to make it all work. And actually, it, it helped our business activities to really grow and also our interpersonal dynamics to improve because things were a little less personal and a little more objective. <laughs> Your quartet also played a lot of repertoire from memory, which mm-hmm. is still rather unusual, even though some more groups are doing it now. Can you talk about what led to that choice for your group and what are some of the tips you have for quartets who want to play from memory and also maybe sure. what is gained from playing from memory and maybe even what sort of like what the trade-offs are from playing from memory. Equality was sort of a, a fierce pursuit <laughs> in the group and, and some of the with some of the repertoire we played um, it didn't always feel that way and there was something kind of wonderful about the sort of the challenge of memorizing music which really put all of us on an equal playing field. That's just something I'll just put out there in terms of a benefit. But we started um, memorizing because we had recorded the complete Brahms string quartets. And when we listened to the edits, we just were not, we sort of unanimously felt that we didn't feel comfortable releasing these recordings for a number of reasons. And we decided to go back and re-record the entire set. And, you know, we had booked a new producer and kind of figured out a a hall and everything and when we sat down to rehearse we were trying to figure out what we were missing in those previous recordings because our playing was fine like everything was fine but it felt like it wasn't jumping off on the page like uh, from the page we felt like we really wanted to we were missing something spontaneous and just fresh about our interpretation that we wanted to convey the other violinist Young suggested that we start as a sort of rehearsal 
strategy, just memorizing portions of the score and putting our chairs close together and just playing from, from memory. And it just, it was kind of wildly transformative for our group because we're all very analytical people. And I think when we're looking at the, the page, maybe this is the same, same for many musicians. When we look at the page, you know, we're obviously, as I like to think of as sort of taking up part of uh, one, you know, one sense uh, dulls other senses, right? So if we're looking at music all the time as musicians, sometimes we're not able to perceive and reach out to each other in the same kind of way and maybe catch those little very, very subtle nuances that other musicians are playing or, you know, intuiting towards us. And so what we found was that upon memorizing the, all the Brahms quartets, which we ended up doing for this recording, and so we we played without music for, for these recordings and then we just started you know performing because we felt kind of amazed by the freedom that we had what we yeah what we found was more freedom we were able to listen we were able to feel like a lot of the analytical work was already taken care of when we sat down to play and so yeah it was a little nerve-wracking at first to go on stage I think the first <laughs> we sort of we started very slowly so it was just like one movement and then we you know did an entire quartet and then we did two quartets on a program. You know, eventually I remember that that three quartet program because we had on there it was it was Haydn Opus Twenty Number Two, Bra- uh, Bartok Fourth Quartet, and Schubert Death and the Maiden. And that was the first three concert memorized program, and we were all pretty scared. <laughs> but at the same time, for me, I actually found that I was in a way less nervous because I used to have really uh, terrible performance anxiety. And I found I was really less nervous for those kind of concerts. And that continued throughout the time because it was so exciting. And I just was kind of like, oh, there's something always very wonderful about going on stage and not knowing exactly what's going to happen. And I think that um, that is certainly a benefit. And there's there's that risk, which is, it's not like a, a risk, like a high, like, oh, this is so great. It's more like a deeper musical risk that seemed to work for our group. I'm not sure it would be the same for every group, but I think also the fact that we just got to know the score so well was such a special experience. I think about all the incredible experiences we had in the memorization process, like memorizing um, Opus 132 slow movement, for example, which we sang much, much of our early work was just sung completely because we found that we could get to know the you know the sort of chorale like sections a lot more intimately if we sang them so just experiences like that were just very special I think obviously drawbacks we had a couple performances where I think we were just at the edge of being able to perform and so I think some of those we didn't have that openness we had that like we're trying to play for memory feeling and I think that was never the goal you know and so I think there are always drawbacks to that if that if the goal is playing for memory, then it can become this sort of feat or even we had some people question if it was a gimmick, you know, and we're like, no, it's not a gimmick. We're actually trying to do this so that we can play better and more freely on stage. And we also were really aiming to always, I think, in our career, try to just lose that barrier between us and the audience as much as possible so we tried that with so many different things whether it was you know talking to audience members during intermission or having people on stage or having concerts in the round we were always 
experimenting with that. And I think this for us felt the most organic way to do that with pieces of music that we really loved. And then another drawback is that you can't play as many pieces, <laughs> but maybe that's a benefit too. I think it's really fascinating. And my quartet tried to do a little bit of that. And I, so yeah, I, I, I heard it was beautiful. <laughs> yeah, It resonates for me. Yeah. Some of what you, what you talk about and, and how it does sort of tip you over into, you almost feel your brain working differently and you're mm -hmm. listening differently. And it's, yeah, you're, yeah, it's hard to explain, but did you have like plans for if things went awry or cause yeah. I think in some ways, in some pieces, it can be, if you're an inner voice, for example, I think it can be right. even scarier in some ways. So mm -hmm. I'm just curious if you can talk a little bit about that, just selfishly, because I'm like, yeah. how did you, what did you guys do when you actually had to do it? We never actually did it in public, really. <laughs> oh, I remember I heard you, your quartet play the uh, those two movements of Mozart at Avalok Farm. And those yeah. were so beautiful and like so spontaneous and free. And like, I loved, I loved that performance. That was Thank gorgeous. You. But I mean, we did have a couple of very funny moments. One in particular where we were playing the, the last movement of the Haydn Opus 20 number two, the fugue, which is this, you know, very quiet sort of what she fugue. And then I just didn't come in. And there was just this long pause. I mean, it was probably five seconds, but five seconds is kind of long. Yeah, it's a lifetime on stage. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, there were definitely some kind of funny experiences, but um, we learned that at, at the beginning, it was kind of, it had to be a unanimous vote that we felt ready to go on stage and do it. Um, this is when we were first kind of trying it out. So we would have a number of performances where we had done basically all the memory work, but we didn't feel like we had done all of the adequate sort of building up performance practice with it. Because it's one thing to do the memory work. It's another thing to have like three sort of performances in preparation for a, a super public performance. And so we would just go on stage and have the music there. We did that a number of times in the beginning. We also did that a couple of times when we had told a series, for example, that we were going to play all the Bartok quartets by heart. And we just didn't feel ready with one or two of them yet. And so we didn't. <laughs> um, and then that actually brought up a really interesting conversation with the audience afterwards. Like, why did you decide not to? And it's like, well, we realized that it wasn't about the feat of it. It was more about the music of it. So if we weren't able to get to that place, again, that sort of that lightness, that spontaneity, that kind of deep musical interaction where you, you know something so well, then there wasn't really a point to going on stage without the music. It also seems to me that having that be a part of your a group's identity does up the ante in terms of having to look out for each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that you're really sort of caring for one another because like you mm -hmm. mentioned some of the risks like you don't want it to be like a kind of circus feat right but right you really do have to be like making sure that you're all kind of in it together and you talk about how you know you kind of have the agreement to do it at all but then even in the moment it seems to me like you you have to be hyper connected to take care of each other. Yeah. No, that there's definitely a sort of extraordinary element of risk, which it's funny, somebody, um, actually more than one person 
compared to like a, a tightrope sort of act, <laughs> high wire yeah. act where you're just, you're up there and you're kind of waiting and you don't know exactly what's going to happen. And I think that I, I like that. I like that there's a vulnerability on stage with three other people that I always really enjoyed about playing string quartets and particularly with the people with whom I played. And I think that chamber music can be so many different things, you know, but that for me was a real goal to be able to have that kind of intimacy, musically speaking, on stage. But I know that that's, that is terrifying for <laughs> a lot of people and, and not something that happens without a lot of time spent together and a lot of sort of trust built up. Well, and I think that that vulnerability is something that at least for me, it's something I think a lot about because it's quite antithetical to the training of a classical musician, a sort mm -hmm. of, you know, modern contemporary, and I mean contemporary meaning the sort of way modern conservatory training is codified in the last hundred years, because it's all about doing the exact opposite of making sure that as close to perfection is achieved and that there are there's a the target is small if you compare say to you said your grandmother's a jazz musician people who for whom the the sort of musical life of the stage performance has more room for spontaneous things to happen that are yeah very often very different from what's actually happening in the practice room yeah i think that um you know this is a <laughs> this is a problem right <laughs> this is a problem uh with classical music training where it's very corrective, right? That's what we hear from the very beginning a lot of times, which is like, no, that's not right. No, do it again. No, there's just, I mean, it's, it's kind of a beautiful thing to perfect the technique of playing an instrument. And that's a wonderful pursuit in and of itself. But then the way it's done, it has to be so, I think, empowering as well in order for people to want to love to do it you know one one thing that that we noticed and my quartet noticed uh, when working on the Bartok quartet recordings was we were listening to a lot of folk recordings that Bartok made and listening to these folk musicians and this sort of extraordinary lack of self-consciousness I mean of course right um and I was just thinking about how classical musicians, we work so hard to get to a place where we can lose those fears, where we can kind of find this, this freedom. And it is like an extra step, or it's many extra steps to try to get to that place. And I, I think the perhaps some of the goal of my quartets in trying to record these Bartok quartets without the music was to try to get to that place. How, how could we get to that place where that was maybe as close as possible to these folk musicians whose tradition inspired Bartok in the first place? So I think that's this circle that theoretically would be extraordinary to try to complete, you know, or at least try to get <laughs> into viewing the circle. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think as a teacher of classical music and as a parent of children who are learning how to practice and that kind of thing, I think it's always a struggle to find this balance between trying to get something that works well and something that is fun and something that just is, is joyful in the first place. So mm -hmm. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I hear what you're saying. Yeah. It's finding that balance. Because you need to, mm -hmm. your tools need to be sharpened to such an extent that you're able to execute whatever hopefully creative vision you have. 
but very yeah. often that can get obscured, I think, by just the sheer reality of what it takes to be skillful as a classical musician. It's such a demanding thing, technically. Your quartet was together for 18 years, right? You played together mm -hmm. for 18 years. And then just, I guess it was just last year, you all decided that it was time to yeah. move move on. And I was wondering if you feel comfortable, if you could talk a little bit about what that was like for you. I've also like, had that experience. And like I think yeah. <laughs> when groups come to an end, it's also it's another thing that maybe I often, as somebody who's in that world, often feel like, oh, it's a thing that's such an incredibly delicate, important experience when something ends and everything has to end. And yet there seems to be a little bit of discomfort with talking about it. Right. And so I think your quartet has demonstrated doing it in a very beautiful sort of graceful way, honoring the group and honoring each other. And so I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about that, especially to talk about what it's like to start a new career phase, which you've written about and, and talked about a little bit and mm -hmm. you know what advice you have for people who are who are moving out of something like leaving a quartet or a quartet ending really is like especially in your case it's a as a huge chapter of your musical life and you mm -hmm. talked earlier about thinking about what percentage of your life you want to have contained by this music container of your career right <laughs> and also being in just a different time of our lives like it is mm -hmm. different when you're a teenager when you're in your 20s and you're sort of all in and that's a beautiful experience so as much as you'd be comfortable talking about that, I would love to hear about it. <laughs> sure, yeah, I'm, it's it's really nice the way you you phrase that question because I do think that people are always very nervous because it is like any kind of relationship. It's like, why'd you break up? But then you you know, it's like, well, it's never an easy answer. Mm -hmm. But I think that for my group, it was a really unanimous feeling in the group that it was time for it to end. We had all been feeling like we're at a time in our lives now where, as you said, we have, you know, a number of years behind us doing this thing that we really dreamed of doing. And, but we still have so many years ahead. And all of us, um, for the last few years of the quartet, we're really starting to pursue our side interests and wanting to have more time to do those. And so I think it was just a question of like, well, things are working really well in our group, which we've been working for years to try to find, you know, in so many ways, like our playing, our flow of travel versus, you know, although I'm not sure there's ever a perfect flow of travel versus being at home ever, especially with family involved, but also our in, interpersonally things were at a, in a good place and I think it was a it was the right time for us to say that each of us was going to go pursue these things that we've been talking about doing or dreamed of doing for a long time. And so it's, in a sense, not too much more complex than that, other than, of course, there are so many <laughs> details to that with each of our lives. And it's, I think it was really important to us, for the four of us, that we left on good terms with each other. And that is still remains like for for me, like one of the most important things that happened in our disbanding was that we are still all on good terms with each other. And that's really, really, really important to me and, and I think to everybody else. 
And we also wanted to kind of honor that community that I talked about in the beginning that had really sustained and followed us for all this time, because it was also 25 years of playing together, at least three of us, um, pretty much from when we were kids. (laughs) And so it was important to us, like we decided to call and write um, notes to a lot of our supporters and friends and family before we even made a formal announcement. And then we, we all wrote separate blogs on our websites and then decided to launch, you know, launch them all at the same time to make sort of a more public announcement so that we could feel like we were sharing this with everybody so that it wasn't an uncomfortable thing, although it is always delicate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's, there's that. I mean, I've been so excited to pursue a lot of the things that I've been really trying to do in little bits when I was in the group, but when you're in a full-time group, you know, it's, you really are committed to that, that group of people, which is wonderful, of course, but it's fun now. And I'm doing like so many different kinds of things, which is, I think the way that I was always, when I was in college, I was always doing many, many different kinds of things and many of them music related, but it's fun to sort of pursue it and say, okay, well, you know, this week I'm going to play with a chamber orchestra. Next week I'm playing in a string quartet. The week following I'm doing work with my husband who's a visual artist. And then I'm also working on some essays and there's a, I'm starting to write a little bit of music, just kind of seeing where creativity can, can take me at this point. So I'm great, grateful for that freedom and that opportunity while still like not regretting, obviously <laughs> the career that I've had, but it, it is informing Everything that I've done in the past is informing what I'm doing now. Can you talk more about your relationship with your husband, um, the artist Anthony Hawley, and especially about a field and your multidisciplinary collaborations and your practice, Bo practice? Yes. <laughs> like, I'd love to hear about all of that. And I'm also super curious, too, to know, I mean, I've seen you and Anthony do your really extraordinary work also at Avalok, and then also mm-hmm. got to hear you sing and play. Um, and, and so I, I just, if you kind of, if I can unleash you and I want to hear about all of your projects and, um, yeah, yeah, this incredible sort of next chapter of your life that you're in now. The work that I, that Anthony and I do together really started because we've known each other for a long time. We met in college and have always been sort of tangentially, working together. I mean, this goes from like me editing some of his essays and poems because he's a writer and a visual artist to, you know, him giving me the most honest feedback (laughs) on my (laughs) musical work. But, you know, and then just trying to say like, huh, how can we meld these two together? And also looking at collaborations um, that we've seen in the past where, you know, you see like a video and a musician and sometimes one is much more interesting than the other. They're not completely connected, you know, and we're like, how can we really fuse this in a beautiful collaborative way that feels like as close to improvisation as possible? And so we started really doing a lot of trial and error and just having a great time coming up with different kinds of ways to collaborate. We've worked with composers who we commissioned and who wrote me pieces, and then we kind of curated evenings and experiences that had video elements. However, what we realized was that as wonderful as that is, 
we really wanted to create our own content. And by doing that, we would fully be working completely together. And so that's been amazing. I mean, we have all sorts of situations where Anthony acts as sort of like a color DJ and he's got a overhead projector and he's making, he's cutting up words while I'm improvising you know, the violin and my voice and, you know, experiences like that are very special. And we've started uh, creating some more narrative evenings that have themes. Uh, one project in particular, which I'll just say a few words about because it's still and it's, it's still being worked on, mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, that involves, it's more politically themed, which is actually going to be an installation that has these huge paintings on the wall, which are actually graphic scores that were taken from uh, political redactions and um, made into a narrative which uh, sort of speaks of the current climate, uh, political climate and loss and sort of devastation and intrigue and all those kinds of things, um, but also involves music that I'm writing and singing. And the singing and playing thing, that's just that's been incredibly fun. And my whole family sings and loves singing. My sister's an opera singer. My father has always sung and my aunts and uncles. And there's just a lot of um, singing in my family. And I just was introduced to the music of Lisa Bialala. I don't know if you know her music, but she's a really, really wonderful composer. And um, I started working on some of her songs that she wrote for the violinist Carla Kilstead. And I just fell in love with the music, but also fell in love with kind of the challenge of trying to sing and play at the same time. There's nothing really quite so intimate as doing that. It's the rubbing the head, patting the stomach, but to come sort of the nth degree, but it's, it's really very fulfilling for me. And it's learning how to sing that way has actually really opened up my violin playing as well. So there's, it's kind of a, a wonderful collaborative thing that I can do that doesn't feel so lonely on stage. It feels kind of, yeah, it's, it's kind of a unique collaboration. I'm so in awe of all of the kind of, even within the quartet, which seems like a more traditional path mm-hmm. um, for a classical musician, but I'm so in awe of all the things that you're doing and I aspire to it and I I, I feel like uh, in my own ways... I've it's mutual, to... Trisha. <laughs> <laughs> well, mutual admiration society here. But um, yes. I also, I, I mean, I'm, I'm just... Part of why the, I kind of have started this podcast too is around the question of my own personal struggles with feeling sometimes scared or afraid to take creative risks. And so mm-hmm. I'm, we talked a little bit about, you know, what a classical training does for a person some of the pros and cons of it. But I am curious to know if you ever experience any sort of trepidation. I wonder if it's different because you are so immersed in music. And I come from, you know, my family's incredibly supportive, but I feel a little bit of an alien in my family. And, you know, what are the things that we need in order to cultivate that sense of creative courage? Like, how do we do that? Because all creative people, I think, struggle with resistance and fear. And sometimes mm-hmm. with the training that I've had, I feel like it's it can get really intense for me. So I'm curious yeah. if you, as much as you'd be comfortable talking about it, if that ever kind of, of course, you know, we all experience fear, but if, if that, how, how you deal with that, I guess. Yeah, that's, a, that's such a 
great question because I feel like we don't talk about that very much in the classical music profession. I feel like there's there's a sort of sometimes there's a an assumption that people just have it together or they don't, you know, <laughs> or they just or if they don't have it together, they just figure it out. Um, and that's sort of what we were talking about before. That kind of lack of vulnerability, I think, can be very harmful. Because, you know, with athletes, like they have these performance coaches who are just helping them go along. And, you know, I've had a little bit of experience with that when I was a student at Juilliard. Um, I worked with uh, Don Green, who was on the faculty there at that point, And that was helpful for me. But I, I don't know. I mean, I think we all have to face that. The How do we find creative courage? And I think we all do it differently. I mean, I think I've always observed my parents who seemed just fearless on stage, for example. And I always had so much anxiety as a child and as a young adult. And I was like, okay, when is this going to end? When is this going to, you know? And I had, I think, creative courage in other elements of my life, in my writing and in my speaking and that kind of thing. But had such a difficult time, even with, you know, with something that I spent so much time on, right? Because we get into those, that crisis of perfectionism, which is just really it's like what we're told to do is made something perfect but then we can't exist right we can't we feel like it's never going to be perfect so we can't present it so it's that it's that crisis i think that a lot of the courage that i have found the sort of empowerment has come from taking risks doing things that i'm, I'm maybe not an expert at so like the singing and playing which I started doing about six years ago is something that really, it shocked me how much it changed my ability to just be fearless on stage, you know, which is actually not that long ago. But <laughs> I'm thinking about that was one of those things where I'm going to, I said, you know, well, here I am, here's my voice. Here it is. Like, no, I haven't had vocal training. I'm just going to do it, you know, or like starting to write more regularly and working on essays and that kind of thing I was like well here it is you know and so and also I think that I really admire the world of visual art and seeing that life uh, with my husband who it's just it's just kind of a daily practice the creativity of a daily creative practice meaning like just making something from scratch and just doing it and not really judging the outcome regularly. I think I've tried for years to adopt the, that kind of practice in, in my own violin practicing and then just <laughs> try to let that seep in and affect my, you know, ability to get things done because I think that um, the fear inherent in presenting something that is that feels somehow not perfect has always been really just terrible. It's just makes everything not work. <laughs> it really messes up with the creativity. So I think when in my teaching, I always try to help my students to find where they're the most creative and how they're most creative and see how they can bring that into their violin practicing in various different ways so that they feel if they're in this crisis where they're really tensing up and not able not being able to express themselves, well let's let's go back, back to your roots. Let's go back to your creative sense of self and how can you tap into that in order to be able to make music freely on stage because I think that's what we all want to do I think the creative courage piece is ongoing <laughs>
it resonates with me because going to art school and making this choice to like pursue this degree that on the outside outset seems completely unrelated to everything else I've done in my life but I also I think bearing witness to other ways of like what a creative life actually is it's something that I came up against a lot in my degree program where I would talk to friends and mentors and teachers and the thing I would express constantly was oh I don't have any business doing this and whatever I'm doing Mm. isn't good so much judgment that yeah again sort of is I think for for a lot of us who are classically trained like you mentioned so much of it is corrective rather than productive meaning like making something it's about how do we take something that somebody else made and make it as beautiful and perfect as possible which is also a really important practice but yeah I wish for myself that I always had the feeling that there was something more and I wish I had been able to either be in environments or had witnessed that happening so I think that that kind of permission giving that I was in dialogue with during those few years was super important yeah um so uh, yeah I can relate to what you're talking about with seeing your husband and being part of each other's lives in that way that creative practice of just getting up and making something just making it Mm -hmm. and then if there's this little spark that's attached to making it which makes you want to make something different or want to continue along that path is just kind of this beautiful process and to be able to do that and not judge it and sometimes just throw it away or erase it it's like wait what I know (laughs) there wasn't a reason for that I didn't plan out my like 45 minutes to like you know (laughs) it we're so used to as musicians as uh, you know becoming as wonderful as we can with our with our practice and our process right and studying as you said other people's processes and how they work has just been fascinating for me I also think that sometimes I feel like I've been trained to be like in the service of somebody else's vision and sort of tasked with this very important job of tending to somebody else's thoughts and feelings and desires and so I think sometimes when I I interviewed um, this violinist Zach Brock um, and he talked about improvisation and how at first mm-hmm. with classical musicians, sometimes the big hurdle is you're standing at the void. And because you have the benefit of all of this communion with really great music, that right. the first time you improvise, you expect it to come back at you like a double fugue or something fully realized, <laughs> you know? Right. And then when you yeah. stand there at the void and you realize there's nothing coming back at first, right. it's really upsetting and demoralizing and and his I think akin to what you're saying is just make something he was like you just have to stand there longer you know and yeah that's absolutely true yeah you just keep kind of at it in what ways do you think your career is what you thought it would be and in what ways is it not that's a really good question it's funny because I think when our quartet started it was such a an all-in kind of enterprise that I wasn't really thinking about what it was going to be necessarily. We were just like going. And in more reflective moments at different times throughout our career, when things were going well or when things weren't going well, I would wonder, wait, is this what I sort of signed up for? Is this what I 
this was what I thought it was going to be. And I guess now that I'm reflecting on a quartet career and looking forward towards a future, I think it's more than I thought it was going to be. I mean, it's, it's sort of richer of a life experience than I could have imagined starting out. I think a lot of that has to do with interpersonal depth, um, not just within my quartet, but in terms of like the audiences and the communities that we have in our lives, you know, as musicians, I think that is like given me so much more than I could have imagined. And that's both as a performer, as an a teach and as a teacher and just sort of a community member, I think in those ways, I'm always surprised by the power of people to certainly enrich my life. And a career is much more about people than about playing well, although we're constantly trying to play well and working hard at that and hopefully playing well. But I think it's the it's the people that matter the most. I am doing more now than I thought I would be doing in the sense that all of the things that my husband and I are doing that I'm doing personally are, I'm excited that I'm able to do the things that I'm doing. So that is continually surprising to me, at least right now. Of course, it's overwhelming sometimes just in terms of the hours of the day. I'm sure you feel the same way, trying to balance all the different projects that you have. But that's, I think, the challenge that I, that I want to have right now. Part of the reason I started this podcast was that I wanted to create a resource that I wish had existed when I was younger and growing up. Um, so what advice would you give your younger self to help her on her journey? That's a great question. I think the advice I would give a younger self would be to have a little bit more fun. Mm-hmm. I'm, I work really hard and I often have not slept a lot <laughs> in my life. So I would say sleep another extra hour any given night. I would say, because I've always been a bit introverted, I would say go to that party, spend more time with people and really value those friendships that you make at school, which I think I did, but I think I could have more. And I don't know, I think the, along the lines of the creative courage that you, that you brought up, I would say never take for granted any of my creative impulses and act on them when I have them. So if I have a wonderful idea when I'm out running in the park, like write about it mm-hmm. or share it with somebody. And I would act sooner on some of those things that I thought were just a dream or just a, a funny idea. I would actually sit down and try to make it happen. I'm really glad you've mentioned your writing. Um, can you talk a little, because I did notice, I was like, oh, she's writing a book of personal essays. You've mentioned it a few times. Can you tell me a little bit about, is it is it sort of a collection around a certain idea or is it maybe too early? And I'd love to read some of more of your writing. It's a book of essays that are, some of them are music related um, and specifically on experiences, sort of formative experiences I had as a child and just thoughts on memory and nostalgia and sort of theoretical conversations on attention and art and noticing and things like that in film and art and music. But then also there's a short little series of essays in there called Gifts for Daughters, which are kind of these abstract gifts for young women. A number of the essays are also about travel and geographies and um, traveling, the act of traveling, but also specific places that seem to me to be important geographies for for me, but also just interesting 
as an American, as a woman. Thank you to Rebecca Fisher, today's guest. You can learn more about Rebecca on her website, RebeccaFisherViolin.com. Visit my blog, IsItRecessYet.com, for show notes and more information about Rebecca and my other guests. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to Is It Recess Yet? on Apple Podcasts and iTunes. And please consider writing a review and rating this podcast to help build the Is It Recess Yet? community and to find like-minded listeners. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next time.